We're going through the Bible together, and this week uh, we read John chapter 16. So if you want to flip over to John 16, I am eager to uh, study the Word with you today. And today we are going to talk about the Holy Ghost, right? We're going to talk about the Holy Ghost, and so our charismatic friends just got excited. They're like, it's about time we talk about the Holy Spirit. But then others of you just got nervous. You're like, well, what does this church believe about the Holy Spirit? Is it going to get weird in here? And, and so, um, you know, there's really two extremes of, uh, of views on the Holy Spirit. You have one extreme where it's like, you know, the Holy Spirit doesn't exist. Like, he's not active. And that all the things that the Holy Spirit did were just for New Testament times. That he's not really doing any of that stuff today. And so let's just kind of ignore the Holy Spirit and not emphasize the Holy Spirit at all, and then there's another extreme that's an overemphasis on the Holy Spirit, and everything's the Holy Spirit, and you wonder if they ever have an original thought, because everything they say is, God told me, God told me, God told me, and you're like, do you ever think that maybe you're just having thoughts sometimes? Maybe it's not God telling you to do everything, and, and they have an overemphasis on the gifts of the Spirit, and the, and the manifestations of the Spirit, and all that kind of stuff, and it's an over-extreme, and and there's another place where you just, maybe you haven't learned, you haven't been taught about the Holy Spirit. So it's not, you're at either extreme, you just don't really know where you stand, and, and you haven't really been taught very well about the Holy Spirit. I mean, the Holy Spirit is the most misunderstood person of the Trinity. We kind of get the Father, we get the Son. There's a lot of information about the Father and the Son, but when it comes to the Holy Spirit, we get a little weird. And uh, I want us as a church today to be informed, to have a healthy and balanced view of the Holy Spirit and His role in our lives. Fortunately for us, we are in John chapter 16, and uh, I heard it said at a conference I went to recently that, uh, which this is true, that there is more pneumatology, the study of the Holy Spirit, there's more pneumatology in John 14 through 16 than anywhere else in the Gospels. And so um, if we didn't have what we have in these few chapters, there would be a lot of questions unanswered about who the Holy Spirit is. So fortunately, we're in chapter 16. We're going to get some good teaching from John about the Holy Spirit. Now, before we open up our Bibles and start reading, um, we want to get some context for what's going on here. And Jesse preached on the Gospel of John last week, did a great job. And so maybe if you're here then, you have context for what's going on in the book. But at this moment, Jesus is at the end of his life. He's got uh, a couple hours to live. And... Um, and so these are some of his last words to his disciples. This, what we're going to see today, is part of the Upper Room Discourse. The Upper Room Discourse is a chunk of Jesus' teaching from John chapter 13 to chapter 17. And because it's called the Upper Room Discourse, because a lot of it took place in the Upper Room. They were celebrating Passover. And this is what's known as the Last Supper. You have the... Twelve apostles in the upper room. Jesus, washed, Jesus washes their feet. They're eating the Passover meal together. Jesus knows I'm dying tomorrow or really in just a few hours later that night, early morning. And, uh, and so 
This is the last teaching he's giving his disciples. Now, although it's called the upper room discourse, not all of it takes place in the upper room because in chapter, the last verse of chapter 14, chapter 14, verse 31 says, Jesus says, rise, let us go from here. So a portion of this teaching, this part right here quite possibly could have occurred as they left the upper room after Passover dinner and they're walking now to the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus will go away with his disciples to pray. He, at one point he prays that high priestly prayer. But he knows he's going to have one more alone time with his father before he hits the cross. These are some of his last words. He knows what's going on. Some of the last things he wants his disciples to know. And so this is where we are in John 16. Um, we're going to look at the first 15 verses, but uh, a relevant passage is going to be the last two verses of chapter 15. So we're going to start in chapter 15, verse 26, and then go to verse 15 of chapter 16. Okay, are you there? Are you ready? All right, let's read the word together, and then we'll pray. John 15, 26. But when the Helper comes whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father. He will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you, that when the hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you, but now I'm going to him who sent me. And none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I have said these things, you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes to you, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged still. I have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father in heaven, I thank you for your spirit's work already uh, among us today um, as we've just lifted up your name in worship and witnessed the gospel through baptism. Lord, I just pray that you'd continue to speak to us. I pray that your spirit would draw us to yourself. Help us to see the glory of Christ as we study the role of the Holy Spirit today. I pray that you'd guide me. Lord, I am utterly dependent on you. I pray that I would speak with clarity and accuracy. 
that you would help me to rightly divide the word of truth and, and that you would give us ears to hear and a heart to receive what you have for us, God. I pray all these things in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Do you ever feel um, overwhelmed by following Jesus um, in, in a fallen world? Like, have, have you ever felt, is it just me, or have you ever felt like, man, I, I have some questions. It seems to be challenging. How do I live for Jesus? How do I pray effectively? How do I share my faith? How do I live righteously? How, how do I interact with the unbelieving people at my workplace or in my school? Like, following Jesus seems to be quite challenging. How do I... How do I do this? Uh, Jared's message two weeks ago was pretty challenging. If you have some time to go watch it, if you haven't, he talked about how Jesus, you know, the cost of following Jesus is to deny yourself and to take up your cross and follow him daily. And that's a hard message. That Jesus' message is one of self-denial, self-sacrifice. And you have to wonder, how am I ever going to do this? And at this conference, I think I referenced that Dr. Jim Shaddix, he said this statement. I thought it was pretty uh, interesting because he's not one of those like cultural analysts or prophetic types. But he said this. He said, I think, let me look at this quote. He says, some of us will go to jail for our faith in my lifetime. And he's like, I'm in my 60s. He's like, I, I seeing things the temperature of the culture. Some of us are going to go to jail for our faith in my lifetime. And whether that's true or not is yet to be seen, but I think that most of us can see that our faith following Jesus is becoming increasingly unpopular in the world. In the West, we've really enjoyed a grace period of uh, Christianity being the predominant religion it was something that if you were a Christian, it, it had advantages in our society, in our nation. People kind of respected you, and they knew they could trust you. But the temperature is shifting, and, and the views for people are shifting, and it's becoming incredibly unpopular to hold basic tenets of the Christian faith. And what do we do when we face this type of opposition? Am I prepared for that? Verse 26, he says... To his disciples, he says, but, well, that word's important because it connects us to what he just said in chapter 15. And in my Bible, I don't know about yours, in my Bible, the heading for the section right above that says the hatred of the world. And in that section, right before he talks about the helper, the Holy Spirit, he says, you're going to be hated for my name's sake. You're going to be persecuted. You're going to be cast out of your synagogues. People, this is not going to be a popular thing for you. It's about to get incredibly difficult to follow me. Jesus knows that he is about to be crucified, raised, and ascend. And so now all the hatred that was aimed at him is now going to be thrust onto all of his followers in his absence. He's like, it's about to get hard. You're going to need some help. You're not going to be able to do this by yourself. He knew that they would need a lot of assistance in living the Christian life. And so that's why he sent a helper. 
This is the main idea. That's the, the sermon title today is called The Holy Helper. And uh, the first main idea, overarching theme, is that the Holy Spirit is our helper. Now, the Greek helper there is um, parakletos. Para, meaning alongside. Our resident missionaries here, Jesse and Kayla McBride, they are starting their own nonprofit to minister to pastors here in the States and in Central America doing incredible work. They just sent off all their paperwork to uh, be approved as a nonprofit and planning for the year, first, first of the year, to launch that ministry. They named their ministry Para Ministries because it means to come alongside of, and they, their vision is to come alongside of pastors and to help pastors thrive in their God-given calling according to the word of God. And so it's para means to come alongside. Kletos means to call. And so paraclete, parakletos, helper here, means um, to call alongside or to call, be called to one's aid. It's a helper, but it's not inferior helper. It's not like he's your butler or your maid or your genie. It's not like he just like he's a force to be manipulated and he just does whatever you tell him to do because he's your little helper. He's not your little helper in the car. You know, you, you know, listen to Tim, uh, whatever his name, Hawkins. <laughs> My little helper in the car. He's not inferior. It's more like a helper in the sense of whenever I have a physical ailment that is beyond my ability, like it's more than a Band-Aid. That's when I go to the doctor is when it's more than a Band-Aid. When it's more than a Band-Aid and you're like, it's beyond my ability to do something, I go and find some help. I find someone who is trained and knowledgeable, who has a superior understanding of the body and medicine to help me out. Or if I have an intellectual question where I'm not sure how to solve a problem, you might go to a, a university professor to seek their expertise to help you solve a problem. Or if you got into some legal trouble and you have a court date, you might then now call a lawyer, a counselor, to help you with this legal. It's not like inferior helper, it's like superior helper. I need somebody who's more qualified than me, more competent than me, more understanding than me, to help me with my situation. That's what's the idea here. Actually, in the, uh, your translations, it might have this word helper translated as counselor, like uh, legal counsel or advocate. And so for those in Christ, the Holy Spirit is like a defense attorney. If you're in Christ... He is like your defense attorney and argues your case before the Lord. The Holy Spirit is, it's important to know, the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. That in the Godhead, we don't, we don't worship three gods, we worship one God and three persons. He's the tri-unity of the Lord, and He is fully God, the Holy Spirit is. Fully God, equal to God the Father, and God the Son, distinct in person and in role. Actually, verse 26 is quite the Trinitarian verse. Let's look at it again and see if we can see the Trinity in this verse. He says, verse 26 of chapter 15, When the Helper comes, whom I will send, there's the Son, from the Father, there's the Father, the Spirit of truth, there's the Spirit. We have the Trinity right there 
in that verse. If you go to chapter 14 and look at verse 26 in chapter 14, it says, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, there's the Spirit, whom the Father will send, there's the Father, in my name. There's Jesus right there. We have the Trinity right there in that verse. In 2 Corinthians 13, 14, he says, The grace of the Lord Jesus, there's the Son, the love of God, there's the Father, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, there's the Spirit, with you all. So although the word Trinity is not in the Bible anywhere, it's the word we use to describe what the, how the Bible describes our God. One God. Three persons. The Holy Spirit is not a force to be used, but a person to be known and loved. The Holy Spirit is not an it. He's a person. He's a person. I've been a part of church services where uh, they might go on the overemphasis side of things and, um, and try to treat the Holy Spirit as some manipulative force that they can use to do whatever they want to do. and That's not the Holy Spirit at all. If you want something from the Holy Spirit, you know what you do? You humbly ask. Because he's a person that wants a relationship with you. Verse 16, chapter 16, verse 1 says, I have said these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when Whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. But they're doing these things because they have not known the Father nor me. Look at verse 1. He says, I've said these things to keep you from falling away. The word there, falling away. Maybe your translation says keep you from stumbling. This is uh, the, the word skandalizo. Properly means to, uh, it's a snare. It's not just like a bump in the road where you tripped, you got back up. It was the idea of like a booby trap. It was like a snare that was set, a stumbling block that was set to destroy you. Scandalezzo is the root where we get our word uh, scandal or scandalize. And the root word of scandalize means, it means a lot of different things today, but it means originally um, a person of, of moral superiority who has had some form of public failure, public moral failure. So originally it was, it was used to describe a, a minister, a clergy, or sometimes someone else in societal leadership that people look to as a moral leader who fell in some sort, and they would say, He's, that was a scandal. He stumbled but more than just a bump, he fell. And this idea here is that they fall away from the faith because things are getting hard. So the Holy Spirit, he says, is going to help keep you from falling away. He's going to help you per persevere till the end because you will be persecuted. Things are going to get difficult. Let's keep reading. He says, but I have said these things to you, verse 4 that uh, when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you, but now I'm going to him who sent me, and none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your hearts. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. 
For I do not go away. If I do not go away, the helper will not come to you, because if I go, I will send him to you. Okay, so there's a lot there. We don't have a time to unpack everything in this uh, section of verses, but I want to point out to you where he says in verse 7, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. Now that kind of conflicts with our understanding of, of what is happening here because Jesus says it's better for him to go away than for him to remain bodily. But I don't know about you, can you think of anything better than having Jesus Christ in the flesh? Can you? All right, that seems pretty incredible. Can you imagine if today, hey, welcome to church, celebrate baptisms were awesome, praise God. Hey, guess who the guest speaker is today? Jesus Christ. I think we'd all be like, that sounds good. Sounds good to me. This sounds great. So how can he say this? That it's better for us, the disciples, in this sense, that he goes away. This kind of feels like whenever your girlfriend's breaking up with you and she's like, it's not you, it's me. It's not you, it's me. And you're like, really? Really? Um, And then we also say things like whenever someone is passing or has passed away, we, we say things like, well, you know, they're in a better place. They're in a better place. Almost never do you hear, we're in a better place now that they're gone. Can you imagine that being the message from, we are in a better place now that they're gone. But that's what Jesus says. So how can he say this? Let's think back to the whole, if Jesus was the guest speaker, I think we'd all enjoy that. And he'd be the best preacher to ever preach. He'd be the best sermon you ever heard. Let's say next week he goes, you know, down the street to, to Baton Rouge. And now he's no longer here. So now, now you're just stuck with me again. And no matter how good of a job I do, I'm not Jesus. And so now we all and every other believer is left in a place where they're not in the presence of Jesus. They're not hearing from Jesus. And he's, there's, there's one group that's having a great experience, but the majority of people are not. I think part of the reason why he says it's better for me to go away is because he can only be in one place in one time if he's here in the body. But in the spirit, he can be in millions of believers all at the same time, all around the world. That bodily, Jesus can only counsel one person one time. Like, imagine getting on Jesus' counseling schedule. Like, I need to talk. I have some problems. Can you help me? And he sits down with you, and one-on-one, he gives you the best counsel you've ever experienced. But he can only do that with one person at one time for a limited amount of time. But whenever he ascends and he sends the Holy Spirit, now the Holy Spirit, the counselor, can counsel each one of us all the time in any moment of need. Bodily, Jesus could only preach the gospel to a limited number of people for a limited time. But through the Holy Spirit, thousands of people are able to then go into the world and preach the gospel empowered by the Holy Spirit. So he says, hey, it's better for you. I think also he's maybe alluding to the fact that it's better for him to go away because him going away is going to the cross. 
If he stayed with them, he would have never went to the cross, never paid the price for our sin, never rose from the grave and ascended to the Father. And we would still be in the same state they were in the old covenant. But he says, it's better that I go away. Because what I'm about to do in the Old Testament is going to unlock a relationship with God that you've never experienced before. No one in the history of the world has experienced before. And the Holy Spirit, my spirit, is going to come and live inside of you. Dwell in you personally. So the Holy Spirit is our helper. But how does he help? Let's look at three things we see in the text today. Uh, The first thing is that the Holy Spirit guilts the world. Look at verse 8. The Holy Spirit guilts the world. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because I do not... They do not believe in me concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and that you will see me no longer. And concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. So he says one of the roles of the Holy Spirit when he comes, he's going to convict the world. Now convict is this idea of convince or expose. It properly means to convince with solid, compelling evidence especially to expose or prove wrong. And so if we think of the counselor, the legal counsel, the advocate, if you're a believer, he's like your defense attorney, but if you're an unbeliever, he's like your prosecuting attorney. And here's the thing, he never loses a case on either side. So which side do you want to be on? So he's like, I'm going to convince you, conviction of three things, conviction of sin, look at verse 9, concerning sin because they do not believe in me. So he's making people aware of their sin and their need for a Savior. People need convincing that they um, are sinful because mostly people think they are not that bad. I mean, if you do a survey of people who are just random people on the street, you've seen this on the internet time and time again, they're like, hey, if you died today, where would you go? Do you think you'd go to heaven or hell? Most people say, no matter what they believe, I'm going to heaven. And you follow up. Now, I don't know many people who are like, I'm headed straight to hell. Most people are, I'm going to heaven. And then you say, okay, follow up. Why do you think you're going to heaven? And you know what they say? They say things like, I'm not that bad of a person. I'm better than a lot of people. Yes, I've done some bad things. I admit that. I've done some bad things in my life. But my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds. I'm not that bad. I don't think God would send me to hell. We need convincing of our sinful state. I mean, he says, uh, I mean, we as people blame everything and everyone for our sin, don't we? We, we, are, we are experts at excuses for our sinfulness. Hey, this is just how I was raised. I mean, I don't know what to tell you. It's a generational thing. I just inherited this mindset or this attitude or this behavior. It's the way I was raised. Or it's my genetics. It's in my DNA. I can't do anything about it. It's just how I was born. Or this is just how God made me. And we just point, 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 point the finger to someone else. And it was, I mean, this is the oldest argument, the oldest excuse in the book because in Adam and Eve in the garden at the very beginning, you know what they did? When they sinned against God and God confronted them and said, hey guys, what, tell me what happened. Let's have a talk. Tell me what happened. And, and, and Adam says, well, this woman who you gave me, yeah, God, me and you, it was just me and you, everything was good. 
when she came along. So then God's like, okay, Eve, you tell me what happened. Well, this serpent. I mean, it's what we've been doing from the very beginning. So we need convincing. We need convincing of our sin, but uh, especially the sin of unbelief. Look at this. He says in verse 8, When he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, verse 9, concerning sin because they do not believe in me. The biggest sin that you're dealing with and all the other, other sins kind of stem from the sin, the greatest sin of unbelief. And the reason why unbelief is the worst sin because it prevents forgiveness for all other sins. It doesn't matter how good of a person you are. If you reject Christ and his work on the cross for the forgiveness of your sins, you're not forgiven. And so the, the, the sin of unbelief prevents you from experiencing forgiveness from every other sin. John 3.18, Jesus says this. Now, we all know John 3.16. But then you keep reading in verse 17 and then verse 18 where he says, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. And why are they condemned already? Because he is not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Like, this is the sin, like, this is the thing that the Holy Spirit is working on. I think he'll work with your conscience to convict you of all the little things. But the big work of the Holy Spirit is convicting us, convincing us of our unbelief and our need to believe. Because without that, we are condemned already. Here's the thing. God's not sending anybody to hell. You're on the highway to hell already. You're condemned already. And it's his work on the cross and his arms stretched out to pull you out of that state. Okay, verse 10. So he con convinces or convicts of sin. In verse 10 he says, Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. And so he's con convincing you of the righteousness of Christ the righteousness of Christ, that God's standard for righteousness is Christ. Let's go back to the last example where it's like, hey, I'm a good person. Why are you a good person? What's, by what standard are you a good person? Well, I'm better than my Uncle Bob over there. I mean, he's really got... Like, what standard? And he says, look, here's the standard. Christ's righteousness is the standard. And the fact that Jesus ascended to the Father, then proves to us that Jesus' righteousness is the standard of righteousness which God accepts. It's the standard of righteousness which God receives into his presence, Christ's righteousness. And so he's saying, you have to, he's going to convince this world who, now, now he's talking to people, the first audience of the gospel was Jewish people, the people who crucified Christ, and so He's like, they think I am a sinner. They think I am a blasphemer. They are about to kill me for what they believe are those crimes. 
So part of the work of the Holy Spirit is to convince them they're wrong about me, that I am the one true righteous person, and to expose our inadequate righteousness, that nothing we do, Isaiah says, like filthy our, our good works are like filthy rags. No matter how good our works are compared to Christ's righteousness, it's pretty rough. But the good news is that Yet while we were still sinners, he became sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. The good news is that even though I don't have the righteousness, my righteousness is inadequate. Because of his perfect righteousness, he imputes it, he gives it, he lays it on me. So then I can be accepted into the arms of the Father like Jesus is. So he's going to convince of righteousness and then Thirdly, conviction of judgment, look at verse 11, concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. So I love this. What he says here is that in the work of the cross, God's enemy is defeated. He is judged, the ruler of this world. In Colossians 2 verse 15, he says, he disarmed, Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him, in Christ. So he's defeated the enemy. In, verse, in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14, it says, Since therefore the children share in the flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, and through death he might destroy the one who has power of death, that is, the devil. He says, in his death, in the death on the cross, he destroyed the power of death, which is the devil. He says, I have destroyed the devil. He is a defeated foe. And so what he uses here is a, 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 an argument from greater to lesser. He's saying, look, if God destroyed the most powerful evil force in the universe, you can be certain that you will not escape. If you are not on the side of Christ, you are an enemy of Christ. And you can be certain that judgment day is coming. So this is, he's like, here's the gospel. The gospel is, you're a sinner. He's going to convince you of that. You're a sinner. Christ is holy and righteous. There's a judgment day coming. And you should be ready by trusting in Jesus. Conviction is a good thing. What conviction reveals to us is that God pursues people. Isn't this beautiful? That God pursues us. You know what God could, like, we're a bunch of just disobedient, rebellious, wicked people. And you know what he could have done? He could have said, to hell with you all, literally. He could have said, I'm going to back up and just let you work this thing out on the way to judgment. I'm just going to stand back and let you experience the consequence for your sin. He could have done that. And he would have been just in doing that. But in his love and his mercy and his grace, he comes to us and he pursues us and he tries to convince us and woo us onto himself because he loves us and he wants us to be reconciled to him. And so I just love that conviction is a great thing because it proves to us that God is pursuing us. 2 Corinthians 7.10 
It says godly grief, godly guilt, if you will, produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. What he's saying is that there's a worldly grief where you're kind of, you're, you're, you're guilty, you feel guilty or you or you're, feel bad mostly because you're going to experience now the consequences of your sin, so you try to apologize or something so that you don't feel pain. But what he's saying is, you know, that kind of guilt where you're just kind of feeling sorry for yourself and going to produce death. It's just going to lead you right to hell. But um, there's a godly grief where you're truly grieved of your sinfulness, your sin against the holy God. And whenever you experience godly grief, it produces repentance where you turn from that sin. How do I know if I'm truly repentant? How do I feel about my sin? Do I hate my sin? Have I turned from my sin? That's godly grief. The Holy Spirit must work on the heart of the unbeliever to convince them of their guilt before a holy God so that they will turn to him in repentance and faith and receive salvation. We see this beautifully illustrated in um, Acts chapter 2. Jesus ascends to the Father. The Holy Spirit falls on the believers. Peter gets up and preaches a gospel sermon, he lays this whole thing out that, you know, you crucified the Son of God, and that was a mistake. God's righteousness is perfect, and he'll impute it to you. If you don't believe in him, you're going to judgment. He just gives the gospel here. Acts 2, 37, he says, and now when they heard this sermon that Peter was preaching, it says they were cut to the heart. They were convicted. They were convinced and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Why does he say be baptized? You're like, is baptism necessary for salvation? Not really. We're saved by grace, through faith in Christ alone, Ephesians says. No, no work of man so that no one may boast. It's all a gift of God. The reason why he so links baptism to salvation is because baptism was the way for you to publicly profess faith in Christ. In our traditions, we've kind of added some things. You come up front if you want to make a profession. You sign a card if you want to make a profession. But the biblical way to make a profession of faith is in the baptistry, is in the waters. So he says, repent and be baptized. That should be our response to the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And have you received the conviction of the Holy Spirit? Let me just encourage you that today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Secondly, the Holy Spirit guides the believer. Look at verse 12. He says, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. I have many things. You can't bear them now. They're like, Jesus, just tell us the truth. And he's like, you can't handle the truth. Just kidding. God, <laughs> I just love that, that he's like, he teaches us different things in different seasons. And there's a lot that Jesus wanted to teach them, but that he couldn't in his earthly ministry, which is why it's dangerous. You have the people, some groups of people who are like, I'm just a, I don't know about all that stuff that Paul wrote or Peter wrote or Luke wrote, but, I, but like the stuff that, 
I'm a red-letter Christian. Like, I just go to the teachings of Jesus, and I'll take what Jesus said, and that's where I'm going to base my life off of. Just I'm a red-letter Christian. And it's like, then you're missing out. Because Jesus said, hey, the stuff in the red letters is not all that I want to say to you. There's more that I want to say to you that I can't right now that the Holy Spirit will teach you later. Namely, through the inspiration of the New Testament scriptures, That's why he continued to speak through the writers as the, of the apostles. That's when verse 13, he says, Then the Holy Spirit of truth comes, when the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak of his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and declare the things that are to come. So I think he's mostly talking here that he's going to guide them into all truth in the sense of he's going to guide the apostles to inscripturate the teachings of Jesus, to to write down by inspiration of the Spirit the truth of Jesus through the rest of the New Testament. We see this taught in 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21, where he writes, Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy has ever produced the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So this is our guide for life, that we go to the Scriptures to be taught by the Spirit. And that's, I think that's what he's getting at here. Um, we see this promise prophesied in Ezekiel chapter 36, where Ezekiel prophesies of this New Testament era. And in chapter 36, verse 26 and 27, Ezekiel prophesies and says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove your heart of stone and, and from your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you. What is the Holy Spirit's work going to do? Cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So the Holy Spirit is going to live in us to guide us in the ways of God, give us understanding of the Scriptures and know what to do, how to live rightly before the Lord. One of, one of which, one of the ways that he guides us in the obedience in Christ is through bearing witness about Christ. We saw that in chapter 15, verse 27, where he says, um, well, just right before that, he says, He, the Spirit, will bear witness about me, and you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. And so um, he's saying... He says, look, God doesn't give you the Holy Spirit so that you feel warm and fuzzy inside. Which, I mean, that might be uh, an effect of the Holy Spirit. I don't know if you've ever experienced the manifest just presence of God and it feels good. But he's like, that's not the purpose. That's not what you should pursue. Like, the purpose is not that you would just experience some euphoric moment of, of being in the Spirit. He says, the purpose is that you would proclaim the gospel. Like the Holy Spirit is going to live in you to give you a purpose in life, and the purpose is to bear witness about Jesus in all aspects of life. I can convince you of this if I had time. So you had to come back Wednesday, and we'll go further into that idea. But that's one of the, the purposes of the Spirit, is to guide us into bearing witness. And how does he guide us? By teaching us the truth of the Scriptures. Chapter 14 of John, verse 
26 this is what he says, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he says that he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. So he's like, the Holy Spirit's role is to teach you what I said, to teach you all things. And Jesus, in his prayer, in, in his high priestly prayer, he says, John 17, 17, he says, Lord, sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. So part of the role of the Holy Spirit is to guide us in the truth of the Scriptures, to give us understanding. And so when you open the Scriptures to read the Bible, just ask, maybe to start with, Holy Spirit, teach me. Give me understanding. Help me to see what you're saying and to apply this to my life. Help me to, but then when I'm away from the Scriptures, when I'm away from the Scriptures, I'm not in my quiet time with the Lord, when I'm away from the Scriptures, Help me to remember the words of Christ while I'm facing different situations and having to make decisions throughout the day. Would you help me remember the words of Christ and how they apply to this moment in my life? Hmm. He does not speak on his own authority. He will not tell you anything that is contrary to what God said in his scriptures. Whenever somebody says, well, the Lord told me to do X, Y, and Z, but it's like, that doesn't make sense because that's not really what the Bible says. And it's like, well, well, the Holy Spirit told me. Well, the Holy Spirit's not going to tell you to do anything that is contrary to the Scriptures. That The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are united in message and mission. You can't say, I don't really read the Bible, I just listen to the Spirit. It's like antithetical to the work of the Spirit. I just listen to the Spirit, you know, don't really read. This is how the Spirit speaks. Who is your guide through life? Who are you listening to? Can you say that the Holy Spirit is your greatest influence in life? I, I, I agree. I, I believe that the Bible teaches that there is a subjective leading of the Spirit in different ways other than just the Scriptures. But the foundation and the primary way God leads us is through the Scriptures. And then throughout the day, teaching us how to, how to live in line with what the Scriptures teach. But yes, the Holy Spirit also leads you in different ways, and are you listening to His voice? Lastly, the Holy Spirit glorifies the Lord Jesus. Look at verse 14. And He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Look at that. He will glorify me. The Holy Spirit is all about Jesus. Look at verse 26 of chapter 15. He says, Helper comes whom I will send, who proceeds from the Father. He will bear witness about me. He will bear witness about Jesus, the Holy Spirit, is humble and doesn't like the spotlight. He shines the spotlight on Jesus. And so any, you got to get this, any practice that elevates the Holy Spirit to the place of prominence in your worship, you've missed the whole goal of the Holy Spirit. Because if the Holy Spirit has his way, Christ will be prominent in all worship. 
He elevates Christ. He glorifies Christ. His role is to make much of Christ in our life. And so any move of the Holy Spirit that doesn't bring glory to Christ is not a move of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not just a a power source in general. It's Christ-glorifying power. Think about this. Think about this. The Holy Spirit does not just do powerful things. He does powerful things that bring glory to Christ. That's his goal. Is it Christ-glorifying? And so the true mark of the Holy Spirit's work is not an overemphasis on the Holy Spirit. It's a greater emphasis on Christ and the gospel. And I just have to wonder, like, how, how, how come traditions that are known for the Holy Spirit, they just, all is Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, come Spirit, Holy Spirit, everything's about the Spirit. And it's like, I think a true Holy Spirit-led Worship is one that is talking all about Jesus. That's what the Holy Spirit does. He exalts Christ. He glorifies Christ. If the Holy Spirit lives in you and you're being led by the Spirit, your life will be about bringing glory to Christ. Does your life glorify Jesus Christ? How have you glorified him this week? All right, to conclude, uh, we got to do quickly because we still have communion. Are you okay with staying a few minutes late? We normally end at 11.30 for those of you who are new, but we're running. It's a full service. It's a full service. Let's, I want to give you some practical steps on how do I live led by the Holy Spirit? How do I live this out? What do I do with what we just heard? Um, one is just ask for him. Ask for him. Jesus said in Luke 11.13, If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? You can ask Him by trusting in Christ for your salvation. Because Romans 8 and 9 tells us that that all who are saved have the Holy Spirit. So whenever you put your faith in Christ, you get the Holy Spirit. And so if you... Um, can ask him in faith in Christ, but it's okay to also ask for more of him. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, he says, do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. And the idea is to be being filled. That's what the language is communicating. Be being filled. There's a continual overflowing uh, filling of the Spirit. And so it's like, do you believe in a second filling of the Spirit? Yeah. And a third, and a fourth, and a fifth, and a sixth, and a... 10,000th, like, I I believe in, put it all on me. And yes, we have the indwelling spirit that is always with us, but it seems like there's a special overflowing of the spirit that occurs for certain points of gospel work. So ask for him, just ask for him. Secondly, listen for him. Listen for him. You know, there's this Old Testament story where God um, audibly speaks to a prophet named Samuel whenever he is a boy, and uh, he keeps thinking that it's his... um, superior, Elijah, uh, Eli, sleeping in the other room. And so he keeps responding to Eli, and finally he says, hey, um, next time you hear the voice just say, speak, Lord, I'm listening. 
It was the, whole, it was the Lord trying to speak to him. And, and so he's like, listen for him. Listen for him. John 10, 27, Jesus says, My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. And the reason why I say listen for him and not listen to him is because listen to him would give the idea of obey him, which that's also true, but listen for him is the idea of he's speaking. He wants to speak to you. So listen for him. When you go to the scriptures, ask, hey, teach me, Lord, and I'm going to listen for you in the scriptures. When I go throughout, when I pray, I'm listening for you, Lord. Whenever I'm going throughout my day, I'm listening for you. And then finally, bend to him. Bend to him. Change your plans because of him. Acts chapter 16, uh, verse 6 and 8. They're like, they're, they're going on this missionary journey. They're wanting to go to a city. And, and he just says, hey, we wanted to go to this town, but the Holy Spirit prevented us. He redirected us to this other town. And the idea is, am I willing to change my plans when the Holy Spirit says something different? And so I'm asking for him daily. I'm, I'm going to listen for him, and, I, and then I'm going to bend to him. Whenever he tells me something, I'm going to do it. When he tells me something in the Scriptures, I'm going to change as a result of what I, what I was taught in the Scriptures. And whenever he tells me something throughout the day, I'm going to bend to him. It's going to be very easy for you to ignore him. I just encourage you to bend to him. How do I know if I'm being guided by the Holy Spirit? Let me ask you this, and just let's reflect on this. If the Holy Spirit was removed from my life, would anything change? Can I do what I'm currently doing without the Holy Spirit? Just think about your life. Think about your days. If God just whoosh, took the Holy Spirit from me, and I know all of us would say, I can't do anything without this. I get that, I get that. But just practically, are you reliant on the Spirit, dependent on the Spirit in such a way that if He was removed, it would change your whole life? Or could you pretty much do everything you're doing now without Him? I heard a pastor say one time that 90% of Christians walk in the flesh 90% of the time. I don't know if that's true, but is that true for you? I'm walking in the flesh, my own strength, or am I walking in the spirit? What am I going to do about it? I would just encourage you, don't leave the house tomorrow without praying that the Holy Spirit would lead you and guide you. Let us not be willing to go throughout our days without God. I say, Holy Spirit, I just surrender to you this morning afresh. I ask that you'd fill me afresh today and that you'd lead me and guide me today as I go about my day. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you that you've loved us and sent your son for us that he died on the cross for our sin, that he rose from the grave, conquering death in the grave, offering eternal life to all who believe in him. I thank you that he ascended to the Father, proving that he was an acceptable sacrifice, and that all who trust in him can enjoy the same. 
eternal life in your presence. And so, Father, I, I pray that if there's anybody in this room who have never trusted you for salvation, that today would be the day that your Holy Spirit convinces them of their sin, of your perfect righteousness, of their future judgment, and that they would trust in you for the salvation of their sin, for the salvation of their souls, that, you would, that they would repent and turn from their sin and trust you, God. And Lord, I thank you that after Christ ascended, that you sent us your spirit, that he lives in all who trust in you, that he guides us and helps us glorify you with our life. And I pray that those who we would call ourselves believers who have just ignored the leading of your spirit, that we've been walking in the flesh in our own strength, doing our own thing, that we would no longer do that, that we would repent of that, and that from this day forward, every day, we would surrender ourselves afresh to you, that your spirit would lead us and guide us. Help us to live lives that glorify Christ. In Jesus' name.